distance. I can see it. Next aid station. <laughs> <laughs> Hi and welcome to your fifth aid station stop. This is Kev here once more and it's great to have you along and thank you for showing your interest in aid station and all things ultra running. If you're listening in England, there is light at the end of the COVID tunnel. I hope you're all getting excited. I certainly am as it means we are nearing the point when trail and ultra races with the right socially distanced precautions in place can get underway once more. This is excellent for the motivation to train. In a packed show, we have the usual features of news, coach comment and trail tips. I also have an on-trail interview with the very experienced ultra runner and running buddy of mine, Hannah Hall, which I'm delighted about as it's taken a couple of attempts to get to the recording. I'll explain that later. On with the show. February the 17th saw the announcement of the results of the draws for the five races organised by the UTMB organisation, Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. If you are one of the lucky participants for this year's races, congratulations, and I hope your training and build-up goes well and you have a great race experience. For the first time, I was in the UTMB draw and got the rejection as expected. Thank goodness, as it would have been far too near the Dragonback race's September date. I only entered the draw because I had accumulated the qualifying points without realising and didn't want to waste the opportunity. I also want to give commiserations to Lizzie Gatherer, who I interviewed in episode 2. Lizzie got a rejection for the CCC race. Never mind Lizzie, you have loads of time on your side to get a place one year. Great news this week is that from March 28th we may be let loose. The government lockdown release guidelines for England mean that we can train in groups of six once more and that from April the 12th, leisure facilities can open. So if gym work, strength and conditioning are part of your training regime, and they should be, this is good news. Also, B&Bs and camping bookings will be allowed, so we may have more freedom to run further afield. Also, if all goes to plan, by May 17th, groups of 30 will be allowed to meet up. Unfortunately, a few more events due to take place in May have not escaped postponement. I am entered in the Silver Great Lakeland three-day event that was due to be held in early May. This event has been put back to the August bank holiday this year. Also, the Isle of Wight Ultra on the 1st of May has also been postponed to a date yet to be announced. I feel for all the organisers and directors trying to juggle the logistics and communication problems. At least, however, they have something more positive and more tangible to work with. And so do we athletes. Races to target with more confidence of them happening, providing added motivation for training. This episode's interview is with Hannah Hall. Hannah was one of the first names on my to interview list when I was planning the Aid Station podcast, so I'm delighted to bring this interview to you. This interview is the third recording as a tech numpty, who shall remain nameless, forgot to press the record button the first time, only realising after 25 minutes of running and talking from Hannah. After much apologies from the tech numpty, Hannah agreed to run the whole interview again, only this time the batteries in the recorder died. So the interview was abandoned and rescheduled. As this is a one-man show, you can guess who the tech numpty is. Once again, this interview takes place on the trail, so here is the heavy breathing, obstacle negotiation, randoms in the background and sniffing warding. Here come the cowboys of inspiration! Well, you're joining me on another trail interview. Um, we're in heading up to Minley Woods, for those that know North Hampshire. And I'm with Hannah Hall. Hello, everyone. Um, and I'm really happy to be doing this interview uh, because Hannah is one of the people that were really responsible for getting me into ultra running. Um, we did uh, Marlborough Downs 
33 miler about five or six years ago um, and that was my first continuous ultra I had done a 12 hour stupidly started with a 12 hour which is on five mile loops um, but that was the first proper ultra so I'm going to ask Hannah about her background and how she got into running and into particularly into ultra running Oh, hi everyone. Um, yeah, I, I got into ultras in a bit of a back-to-front way, really. Um, I did a bit of mountaineering and a lot of hiking uh, and then realised I was a bit scared of heights. Um, I couldn't really afford all the kit to do, climb any higher uh, and decided it might be interesting to see if I could just go faster instead. Uh, so the first couple of ultras I did, I did as a kind of as a hiker, and then just realised I need to learn how to run if I wanted to get any faster. And how long ago was that? When did you start? Oh, <laughs> this is probably about 15 years ago. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so I was in my mid-twenties. I didn't really run at all before then. Hated running, really. So I applied myself to a half-marathon training programme. Gave myself a year to build up to it. That was Bedford half-marathon. Probably the only time I've stuck diligently to a training plan but at the same time I was doing a couple of long distance hiking events uh, and then the two sort of merged I guess. Okay so where was where was your first ultra then? Uh, a guy from work called me into doing the Felsman uh, which is an amazing 62 mile race up in Yorkshire. Uh, it still runs today it's a fantastic event, uh, run by the local scouts. It was done for peanuts, really, then. I think it was 20-something pounds for the whole weekend with transport, a hall to sleep in, checkpoints. Oh, wow. Uh, um, really tough race, though. Uh, really difficult navigation, pretty tough terrain. Uh, but just amazing. I really fell in love with ultras from that and that was uh obviously going back back in the day <laughs> or further back in the era that i guess came out of fell running really yeah uh, it was um that was a gun went off it was a bit of a different sport back then uh, there were very few big commercial events like there are now um very few events down south really so um a lot of the races I did were up in the lakes, the Peak District, the Yorkshire Moors. They tended to be sort of local community events that have been going on for decades, uh, often with a kind of walking tradition. Um, and they started attracting a few runners. Uh, yeah. So it was a great environment to start ultras because there was um, you know, a strong tradition of walking as well very low-key just loved it rock up in a field some guy rings a cowbell <laughs> off you all go and uh so you did you do a lot of traveling up north to do those types of events then? yeah i uh i used to joke that the running was the easy bit it was the <laughs> driving up and down that there was the real test of endurance yeah so yeah for the first few years i was always by myself and uh yeah, I think it was quite a challenge to look after myself properly, uh, yeah. being sort of self-sufficient with transport and everything else. I remember no. passing out in my car, finishing a race at about three o'clock in the morning once, oh and being so cold and knackered and <laughs> feeling so sick. Oh. I didn't even get under, I don't think I even took my shoes off. Oh. I literally just wrapped myself up in my sleeping bag, sort of passed out <laughs> over the wheel of my car. That was, um, for a woman, that was a really brave thing to do because I guess there weren't a whole load of women about either in those days so much doing these events. There weren't. It was uh, definitely <laughs> the majority of participants tended to be male. A lot of them a bit older. Uh, that was, uh, I often used to wonder why there'd be a smattering of people in their 20s and 30s and then everyone else seemed to be in their 50s and 60s. And now as a woman in my 40s juggling the commitment of work and a young family, yeah. I understand why none of them were there. <laughs> yeah. 
So you, you didn't really, did you find any women at all of your sort of age group or anything that you could get involved with? Yeah, I was super lucky. I um, became friends with a lovely lady called Karen McDonald. Uh, we ended up forming a girls running team called Run Like a Girl. We did some events together, four of us. Um, Karen was involved with a race series called Run Further, uh, which is a brilliant series of ultras. Uh, sort of, they didn't organise the ultras themselves, but it's an organised league uh, to earn points right. every year. Right. Uh, and some really wonderful races in there. Highly recommend it to anyone. And uh, so what was the progression? I presume you started to learn from some of these old gits <laughs> that you were running with. I did, um, yeah, and uh, well, I think you learn something from every race. Mostly I just learned that I really loved it uh, and wanted to do as much as I could. So probably for a period of about four, maybe five years, I ended up racing pretty much every month, just for the sheer love of it, really. And as time went on, I found myself a bit more competitive to the point where on a good day, a sort of top 10 finish was certainly possible. Oh, Eventually got some podium finishes. Oh, uh, finally came first in the race, oh, really? which, was, wow. <laughs> which was bloody good news because <laughs> I got pregnant shortly after that. <laughs> so I could right. semi-retire with some degree of satisfaction. <laughs> but that was a classic. So that was a... Uh, that was the Coventry Way, which is a 40-mile race around Coventry yeah. uh, on beautiful rural paths. It's the same day as the London Marathon, and I could never understand why everyone was heading to London <laughs> to cram themselves onto yeah. a couple of roads, queue for ages for a loo, when all I had to do was drive up to Coventry. The start time was, I think it was any time between seven and nine, yeah. He turned up in a field. There was one man <laughs> with a clipboard oh. who noted your start time. And 40 miles later, you finished in the pub. <laughs> so, oh, because it was a staggered start, I wasn't running it particularly competitively. Yeah. And I actually didn't find out I'd come first until the end of the week when they published the results. <laughs> uh, and I'd actually <laughs> beaten the lady who came second. I think it was under two minutes different. Oh, really? Oh, uh, that guy so with never... the clipboard did a good job then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah slipped him a fiver. <laughs> um, the thing that always makes me laugh is I'd fallen over and cut my shin with about five miles to go. And there was a brilliant little checkpoint at some lady's house in a beautiful garden with like rose trellises. It was so English, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Everyone was drinking tea, eating cake, and she started sort of fussing over me and wanting to bandage me up. And <laughs> I remember trying to sort of gently disentangle myself from, <laughs> from her care because I just wanted to finish. Uh, who knew that... I was so close to being first <laughs> and <laughs> I could have screwed it all up <laughs> for the sake of a plaster. Yeah. How to run an ultra and have afternoon tea in the middle of oh, it. <laughs> I mean, why not? <laughs> so from, from there, you obviously progressed. Um, where did you take it? Or, or how did you come about some of the challenges that you've since undertaken? I think with ultras sometimes it's um, the big ones that you want to really throw yourself into. It has to be something that really captures your heart a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and for me it was always going to be the ultra tour Mont Blanc. I'd uh, oh, run uphill. Yeah. I'd, um, <laughs> I'd, climb, <laughs> I'd climbed it a few years before um, and just was totally in love with the mountains. Right. I tended to do better in hillier races. Uh, the more mountainous, the better. But it just never occurred to me that it was in my sphere of possibility, really. I just didn't think I was fit enough or strong enough. But then Karen, the lady I mentioned, she went and had a bash at it. And that, for me, was a real eye-opener. I thought, well, we're about the same pace. Yeah. So maybe... Just maybe 
I could give it a stab. Uh, so I did. And do you think the uh, that you went better in the mountains was because of the background you had with mountaineering or long walking in the mountains or hills? I'm not sure. I think I just probably just a little bit, but was this uh, sheer sort of stubborn mindedness. Yeah. Um, which I have in spades. Um, and I just love the mountains. It's definitely what makes my heart sing. So, yeah. just my happy place, really. Right. It took me a long time to learn about descents. <laughs> uh, I have a good running friend, Nigel, who uh, lives up north, and he can descend like, oh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, when we used to race together, he would. Uh, when there's a big hill coming up, we'd actually split up. He'd let me power up, safe in the knowledge that he would catch me on the way down. Uh, yeah. Uh, did you did you follow him down or try to yeah, follow him? I learned loads from him, uh, and just from copying the way he'd pick a line down a down a hill. Um, I think with descents, a lot of it's confidence, uh, learning just to let you let yourself go. Yeah. So yeah, I got to a point where on a few races down south people would end up commending me on my descent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. Yeah, we're not that good at descending in the south, are we? No, <laughs> You're going to learn it, go up north. Practice, it's experience, yeah, sure. it's confidence. So, UTMB, yeah. what year was that? Uh, 2009, I think, if I remember rightly. Right. Um, so let's go in back. It was a different event then as well. Um, well, I was lucky. I was the last year where you had to earn points to enter. All right. But once you got those points, there was no ballot. Oh, you okay. just had a place. Yeah. So I was extremely lucky from that point of view. Uh, so I got my points and uh, just got stuck in with the training. Yeah, and how, how long did you give yourself for that from when you decided that you were going to get the points, I guess, because you've got to think that far out, haven't you, with it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the last points I would have got would have been just before the Christmas and then the race is in August. Yeah. Uh, but I was already in a fairly good place. I mean, I was running 50, 60 miles on quite a regular basis. Yeah, uh, a week, yeah. So it was yeah. just... So fine-tuning the training. Um, but I still, I don't think I ran a race longer than 60 miles before the UTMB. Oh, right. So you'd never, yeah, never been up to 100 or anything like that before it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and have you done any running at night? Yeah, I've done a lot of, um, a lot of really tricky races up north through the night. Right. Um, often having to navigate as well. So I was pretty comfortable with the night running. My struggle was uh, I was living and working in central London. So I was just finding ways to train for the mountains. Yeah. So I, uh, I used to go to the gym at work and lunch breaks, uh, take a little rucksack, stash a load of weights in it, <laughs> and uh, go on the oh, wow. step machine. Oh. It was... It was not fun. No, I bet it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but it was great training, just plod away on it. Yeah. Uh, and I was working with the military at the time. So it was lovely to have a few of the really hardcore military guys come over and uh, chat about how I was training. And All right, so they were in the gym. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wondering what the hell this blonde civil servant was up to. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, tell me about the race itself. How did it go? Oh, it was just, it was beyond exciting. I mean, I'll never forget the feeling of that start line. Yeah. There's over 2,000 runners, a crowd probably double that size, helicopters sweeping overhead, taking photos. Oh. They, they're buggers, really, because they... Uh, <laughs> They played the most ridiculously emotional music <laughs> yeah. at full volume over the stereo. <laughs> it's quite hard not to cry. Yeah. Uh, and then because it's such a huge race, 
yeah, there's some amazing international athletes there. Yeah. And you can kind of see their heads at the start line. <laughs> thinking, wow, I'm at a start line with these guys. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah, and you're going to run the same route. Yeah, I'll never see them again. Yeah. But... They'll be far too far in front of her. Yeah. But right now, we're competing in the same event, which I think is something quite charming and unique to ultras. How far was the first aid station? Uh, I think it was probably seven or eight miles. Right. I set off far too fast, despite all my <laughs> all my experience telling me not to. Was that seven or eight miles of climbing as well? Uh, first few miles flat right. and started the first. So it's basically 11 mountains. Right. Okay. <laughs> but you start in, start in France run into Switzerland, <laughs> through Italy, back in, I mean, it's just, it's so exciting. Oh, and the scenery is just staggering. I mean, it really is something quite special. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had a brutal first night of it. I started too fast, uh, really struggled through the night, uh, got a bit disorientated, uh, started insisting that the marshals at one of the checkpoints find my grab bag, not realising there wasn't wasn't the station where the spare bags were. It just took me a while to sort, of sort myself out mentally. Yeah. Um. And just the uh, just the tricks that your brain wants to play on you when it's trying to tell you that the likelihood of you staying out for another whole day and a whole night right. uh, on the trail. This just seems sort of somewhat impossible. And uh, did you feel the pressure of the cutoffs? Because obviously there's checkpoints and cutoffs along the way. Yeah, I had a few friends who'd been um, cut off by the checkpoint times, which they enforce very strictly. Uh, one lady I know made it into a checkpoint on time. I thought, right, I'll just have a drink, sort myself out. And they rang the bell while she was at the checkpoint oh, no. and wouldn't let her carry on, which must have been heartbreaking. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of maybe newbie ultra runners don't realise at the checkpoints. It's not when you get into them, it's you've got to be out of them. Yeah. I think she was like 60 odd miles in. I mean, right. oh, oh. <laughs> uh, so my plan was to stay within two hours ahead of the checkpoint cutoff times. Uh, and not really try to be faster than that. Another serious wobble just after halfway. I think most ultra runners would agree that's often the hardest part of a race. Yeah. When you're seriously knackered, you've gone a long way <laughs> and you still have what seems like a ridiculous amount of time left on your feet. Yeah. Um, knowing that I had another night to run through as well was, oh, was yeah, quite hard. Yeah because they start the UTMB at six o'clock in the evening on the Friday. Yeah. So all but the quickest have two nights to go through. I had another fairly major wobble at about 60 miles to the point where I think I actually sat by the side of the path and cried for a bit. <laughs> then decided to just take it one, one hill, one switchback, one tree at a time. Gosh, and yeah. uh, by about 70 miles, I started thinking, actually, I can do it. Yeah. Uh, I loved the last 30 miles. Felt really good. And was that in daylight by now? Uh, no, that was still at oh, night. Okay. And then coming into, I finished around, I think it was around midday. Yeah. <laughs> and you weren't there on your own? No, I was very lucky. My boyfriend at the time, now husband, um, Rob, had come to support me. His, uh, his, his view on the whole weekend is that he had the tough time. <laughs> well, he had been supporting you, hadn't he? he, he Crewing you at other events he did in the build up. About 200 miles <laughs> through various mountain passes, yeah. trying to negotiate where he could find me. Uh, yeah, no, he did a great job. And uh, after years of doing races with no support, that made a huge difference. In the second night, I started having a few hallucinations and they were all of, all of him in like weird forms. I saw him <laughs> sitting with a Lego family <laughs> under a tree having a picnic. <laughs> I saw him 
carved as an archer in a piece of rock. That was all I remember very clearly. Oh, <laughs> this godlike creature. I then. know. <laughs> and apparently that's often what you what you do when you hallucinate. You sort of hallucinate the thing that brings you comfort. So oh, it appears right. stories yeah. of people hallucinating a, a dog running with them or Yes, yeah. That's that's interesting because I had hallucinations in the long run in the mountains in Bulgaria. Well, and what were they on? Well, the only person in them was me. Ah. <laughs> so that well, doesn't sure say a lot about me. <laughs> am I the most self-centred person on the planet? Or am I the only one I trust? Anyway, because Rod was such a good guy, and obviously <laughs> you've married him since, tell us about when you got to the finish. Oh, just... I think from the last checkpoint on the last mountain, it's about six miles to the finish. And you can hear the crowd. Um, again, very hard not to just cry. Uh, I'd torn a muscle in my calf getting over the last scramble. But, my God, you'd have had to run me over with a tractor at that point not to get me to the finish line. <laughs> yeah, um, So, <laughs> I had what felt like a fairly strong finish. I overtook about 100-odd people in those last few miles. Uh, and right. Rob had uh, started a little tradition of being at the finish line of a race, no matter what time of day, with uh, a bunch of flowers and a pear cider. Oh, that's uh, excellent. So, uh, yeah, there he was. And for anyone who's ever watched any footage of the UTMB, I mean, if you want a good cry, <laughs> just watch, <laughs> watch the footage of the finish line. Yeah, yeah just... from, from the first one over to the last. <laughs> yeah, Brilliant. So, after UTMB, what was next? Well, there was a, uh, a running company in the UK that had decided they wanted the UK to have a race of similar stature of, as the UTMB. Oh, right, yeah. And they'd come up with a, the Ultra Tour Lake District. I think the first year they did it, they had maybe 14 runners. Yeah. Um, so I'd run the... They had a 50-mile race and a 100. I'd done the 50. Uh, really been in awe of the people running the 100. And then after UTMB, I thought, well, why not give it a bash? Yeah. Um, obviously, the elevation's not quite as severe as the UTMB, but the conditions underfoot were a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, and you had to navigate. Um, right, so it was it fully, fully navigational? Fully navigational, uh. quite tricky terrain. So I entered with my friend Nigel. Yeah. Oh, he of the Great Descents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, that was the late 100, yeah? That yep, that's it, yep. Yeah. Um, so um. we entered as a mixed pair. Oh, right, uh, Yeah. Spent a fair bit of time wrecking the route. Another just brilliant race. Really challenging. And what was that like doing buddied up? Because you must have a responsibility to each other. Yeah, by well, Nigel and I became friends because uh, I always set off in races too fast. I'm a bit giddy with enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, and inevitably, <laughs> somewhere around halfway, he would catch me up. Uh, including one occasion where I'd fallen over and was lying in a ditch, and he literally scooped me up. Uh, <laughs> All right. So we became friends, friends. by virtue of entering the same races and uh, yeah. often finishing together, uh, particularly races where you ended up doing the second half in the dark. Uh, we were a good team. He liked his technology. I was an old-school map and compass girl. Oh, so uh, yeah. we used to do the both between us. Yeah. Um, so we'd always have backup. Uh, we just enjoyed each other's company and running together. So yeah, I think the... that's the key. If you've got skills and attributes that complement <laughs> each other, that's really good, isn't it, for the team? Yeah, and I think having someone uh, to push you through the the darker moments or yeah. the miles where you think you might slightly be losing your mind, um, particularly on a race like the Lakeland Hundred, where the the navigation's so difficult. Uh, and it wasn't a, yeah, the UTMB was 
over 2,000 runners. So you weren't ever alone. Yep. It's a well-marked trail. Whereas a lot of the time in the Lakeland 100, you're pretty much running by yourself. Yeah, sure. And so following that, and obviously you were six, successful as a team. We were. We were the fastest mixed pair. Oh, excellent. Uh, the, the heartbreaking moment for me was uh, having come fourth female the year before in a few races. Uh, <laughs> we had a we had a good finish on the Lakeland Hundred. Had a really strong last twenty miles, which was all down to Nigel making us pace ourselves. Yes. And uh, they were, I'll be honest, there weren't many women entered. Oh, okay. I think there were nine. Well, you can only beat who turns up. Yeah. But by mile 80 or so, I knew I'd overtaken four or five. Yeah. So we started wondering whether I might get a podium finish. And about 100 metres from the finish, I'm not going to lie, you could actually see the finish. We saw ahead of us a ponytail oh, wow. swinging in the darkness. <laughs> and we were like, oh my God, I've got to go for it. So we <laughs> sprinted off down this bit of tarmac. And I just overtook her right. uh, to the point where as soon as I crossed the finish line, I had to apologise because yeah. I felt like a real cow. <laughs> like you were ahead of me for 103.5 miles. <laughs> anyway, that was a uh, third female position. All right. But they wouldn't give it to me because I was entered as a mixed pair. Oh. So, <laughs> oh, so you're not that competitive, Hannah? No, not at all. <laughs> Wouldn't get better out the way at all. <laughs> oh, brilliant story. So, after that, because I know you'll now uh, have a family. I do, yeah. Did they uh, get in the way? I shouldn't say get in the way. <laughs> they certainly do. Yeah, <laughs> I meant of your, your ultra. You know, obviously you've done UTMB and you've done the Lakeland 100. So, you know, you pretty much pinnacled out there anyway. Was it family next or? Uh, I think I'd had maybe four or five years of being absolutely obsessed with running ultras. Yeah. So when I had my daughters, I thought, you know, I don't need to be racing like that. There's too much time away from a young family for me. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, promised myself I'd try and do an ultra a year just to keep my hand in yeah. um, and I'm sure one day I'll go back to doing more but there's different ways of enjoying running and you know I took my seven-year-old out for her first night trail run last night oh, she ran three and a half miles in the dark with a head torch oh excellent uh, so and I don't think, I don't think I've, I'm done with ultras. <laughs> I don't um, think she is either. But, um, <laughs> well, that's it. We're now chatting about how many years I've got before she's faster than me. She's planning her first marathon. I'll just have to try and be able to keep up, I guess. Yeah. But no, there's definitely a few more on the bucket list still. Yeah, oh, that's great news. Um, and there's no reason why you, the family can't grow with you anyway on that journey. Yeah, and if no. you involve them and take them to all these beautiful mountainous places, well, and as they're you just going to love the outdoors, aren't they? They've come to the finish line of a few races, yeah. Marlborough Downs included. Um, I think it's great for your kids to see you yes. putting yourself out there and yeah. uh, having a passion for something. Yeah. Well, all parents are their role models. And I don't want to get too deep with this, but I'm a great believer that if that generation's going to save the planet that my generation has messed up, um, <laughs> they need to be in touch with nature and understand it. So there's nothing better than a bit of running or walking outdoors yeah, to get them in touch with it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> so on the business front, because you're a businesswoman as well, you want to know, because uh, I want to ask you some questions about strength and fitness okay. for strength and conditioning. So, could you give us some background on Blaze? Yeah, I, um, I guess ultras changed my life, really, uh, because as well as falling in love with the running, they sort of changed the path my career was taking. 
uh, I was a civil servant at the time. Yeah. Um, in the process of training for ultras, I became really interested in anatomy and physiology and how the body worked and what it could endure. So I qualified as a sports massage therapist. Uh, and then when I had my kids, I didn't want the hours in the commute to London that my previous career entailed. So I decided to commit full-time to the sports massage business and then my other passion just for fitness in general and sort of facilitating people yeah. on their fitness journey. I ended up uh, qualifying as a fitness instructor and setting up a little local business yeah. in outdoor boot camps. So tell us about that business. Uh, so it's called Blaze. Uh, we run outdoor boot camp sessions and one run session a week. Really sort of focused on sort of being a boot camp, but with a strong emphasis on team spirit, helping each other out, catering to all fitness levels, Excellent. having fun, really pushing yourself, just enjoying being outdoors, bit of rolling around in the mud, <laughs> bit of friendly competition. Yeah. Um, but it's really important to me that we're inclusive. Yeah. Um, it's not about ego or who's got the biggest muscles. Yeah. It's about really helping each individual achieve the most they can and having a whole lot of fun while they're at it. As long as they don't finish ahead of Hannah. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> got it in one, Kev. <laughs> and that's local to Fleet, Hampshire and surrounding areas, I yeah, guess. in Fleet, just in Fleet at the moment. Oh, is it? Right. So it's obviously been a tough year with COVID. Yeah. Uh, we've been running in online sessions. I'm very much looking forward to getting back outdoors. Yeah, I bet. So happy, <laughs> like we all are. Um, so, on the S&C work, or strength yeah. and conditioning, um, you know, I'm a strong advocate of that, especially for ultra runners. Is there anything that you would say in terms of uh, incorporating it in a weekly training programme, what sort of time or number of sessions that you might need to do? Well, I think from my years in my 20s running ultras I learned that how important SNC was yeah. at that point I was doing two circuit training sessions a week and one power lifting session in the gym uh, and I'm a big believer in all that work so being testament to the fact I didn't really suffer any injuries yeah. I was younger too, I was in my 20s but uh, I'm sure that was a key component of it yeah you're still developing muscle mass as well aren't you yeah. so. all the snc work i try and focus on particularly for runners a lot of single leg work yeah. anything that includes a bit of explosive power really important and i think a lot of runners just love to run and that's great but actually that way lies injury and despair yeah, uh, yes. if you don't look after the rest of it yeah and as a massage therapist, I certainly see that time and time again. Yeah. Yeah, I think as a runner, the only time you shouldn't be running <laughs> is if you're doing strength and conditioning or recovering. Anything else is injury yeah. or illness. Absolutely. So as a massage therapist, I like to put my runners on a lot of programmes of single leg work. Um, I think a lot of people tend to forget Running is ultimately the sport about your single legs. Yeah. You're always on one leg at a time. Yes. So you might be able to squat with a 60 kilogram weight on your shoulders. It doesn't really matter if your right leg's doing all the work because yep. your left side's weak. Right. And that's what you've got to find out and work on your weakest point. Balance yourself out. Yep. Most injuries happen because of some kind of imbalance left and right side yes um so taking it back to basics single leg work i think is really invaluable yeah. and and how many sessions would you say you know if you were doing four runs a week how often would you incorporate that i think it depends on the kind of session and how many uh run sessions you do a week um, right. something like a the boot camps we run at Blaze, 
tend to incorporate quite a lot of running when we're outdoors. Yep. So I always have to, uh, for myself, be mindful of the fact that actually that kind of counts as some high intensity running. Um, probably wouldn't be the case if you're just doing more of a hit session at home or in the gym, but it, I think it's just balancing out. I'd certainly say at least once a week, maybe twice a week, but just yeah. depends what else is in your plan. Yeah. You've got to make sure you get enough rest. And, and another, she says. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> she says on a hundred day running streak, but we won't go into that at the moment. Uh, where I was going was the uh, flexibility side, because it's not just strength and conditioning, although the conditioning could be part of flexibility. Yeah. But I guess you do flexibility work as well around that, um, because as an older runner, everything's different up. Um, and you get tendonitis or tendinosis more often, so... It's certainly my weak point as a runner myself is not committing enough time to flexibility. I've always said if I had an extra session a week, I should probably be doing yoga or some sort of stretching. Yeah. Uh, I do stretch a lot after each run. Yeah. Um, but I think it's something most people could do more of, for sure. I think it's also very interesting how people's anatomy is very different. You know, I've got clients who really push themselves running, who never stretch and seem to run away relatively unscathed. I mean, I couldn't go more than a couple of runs without stretching, without falling apart. So I think uh, sometimes it's about knowing your body, how much you need to do, which is uh, which areas of your body need you need to focus on yeah. well I you know as a running coach I see it all the time at running clubs and you always get the characters that are very good runners and disappear as soon as you start a stretch session yeah. after the session <laughs> um, and they you know they're really they're still quick they're still fast they still produce the results but it's going to catch up because <laughs> once you get into your 50s and 60s if you're not doing that stuff now it becomes very hard when you start doing it and it, it's a lot to do isn't it with muscle memory and yeah, getting absolutely. used to it yeah I think uh, I see people who seem to be getting away with it and I uh, always wonder when it will not that I want it to catch up no, with them no. always sort of think at some point surely it's going to yeah yeah, I just think it's an element that, you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> it's not that difficult to do yeah. 15 minutes of stretching. Well, exactly. Why wouldn't you incorporate it? I think it's part of the general package of looking after yourself as a runner um, that most of us become more mindful of as we get a bit older. Yeah. I know my yeah, recovery from ultras used to be sit in a car for seven hours and drive home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, not, fall not out of the car in a kind of yeah. seated position. <laughs> yeah, not to be recommended by anybody driving home after a long long time. No, I did. People did. I did make sure I'd had some sleep. Yeah, well done. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Hannah. It's been a delight. We've had fantastic weather. Yeah, gorgeous day. Run. You know, I'm always in awe of you. You're one of the few people I know that's run the UTMB and completed, so <laughs> you are a hero. Oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> and uh, thanks very much, and uh, enjoy your running, and can't wait to see you out in your first ultra again. Yeah, well, I might see you there, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll probably drag me out. <laughs> well, I hope you found that interview informative and inspiring. I see Hannah as a woman pioneer of modern era ultra running. A lot of people in the sport hail the one or two women who shone out as front runners at the time, and rightly so. But I believe women like Hannah, and there were others, have paved the way for many of us ordinary mid-backpack runners, both women and men, to swell the event fields. As a woman, to be drawn to such a demanding sport, be motivated enough to travel alone up to Cumbria and Yorkshire to race and then drive home alone again in the weekend takes determination, motivation and passion. Racing among mainly older men must have been daunting experience 15 years ago. 
Today, the average ultra race field size for women is about 15%. This is still a low figure compared to road races, but with ultra races averaging an entry of around 250 participants, this is still around 37 women, over five times more than raced in some of Hannah's early entry races. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us, Hannah. I hope that there are plenty of women out there that will listen to this episode and be inspired to run further, higher and even a bit faster. I was keen to discuss strength and conditioning with Hannah. As a coach, I believe it to be the most important element after event-specific running to running improvement. Good muscular and skeletal strength will lead to better running form, as you will be able to maintain a good body posture for longer. Stronger ligament and tender connectivity will aid running over technical terrain, help you cope with rapid directional changes, such as when descending, and improve time to muscular fatigue when ascending. S&C work should be continued, and if not already undertaken, be carried out, to slow bone degeneration in postmenopausal women due to the reduction of oestrogen, and in men over 40 due to the gradual reduction in testosterone levels. I recommend at least one 30-minute weight-bearing S&C workout per seven-day training period. This session should be based on high loading and low number of repetitions. However, do not just load up and start trying to lift your body weight, as with all elements of training, build up the weight slowly. Plan out a 12-week period to build towards higher loads. In terms of phasing your training week, avoid S&C work the day before a speed session or long slow distance run. As Hannah said, start with sets of them first to build up some leg strength and muscle memory. If you're doing leg squats and you progress to single leg squats, make sure you're doing even numbers on each leg, unless you have particularly a weaker leg you are working on. Although a gym is the best place to do this work, you can more easily do this half an hour session in your home or garage using a couple of 5K hand weights. You are not trying to bulk up, but you are trying to stay upright for longer in races. Also, if you are into mountain ultras, you are going to need your upper body strength at some point for poling and hand scrambling. Get 12 weeks worth of this work in and you'll be much stronger by the summer. Keep it in your training program, building over time, and you will be much less injury prone and extend your running lifespan. Trial tips. When ascending without poles, the best technique is to use your arms to drive your legs downwards, effectively adding about another 30% plus to the muscular recruitment to the leg drive. To do this, lean slightly into the angle of the slope of the hill or mountain. Place the palm of your right hand onto the top of your right thigh. You can place your hand either with all your fingers pointing in towards your inner thigh, or your thumb pointing to your inner thigh and your other fingers pointing to the outer side of your thigh. As you drive down with your right leg, push down with your right hand and arm. Once you reach the maximum natural leg extension for the angle of the slope on the right leg, start the drive with the left leg, hand and arm. You do not need to apply loads of force during this action. It will only lead to quicker exhaustion and a swaying from side to side as you drive down too hard. Keep the pressure firm and even on each leg. Lift your gaze up the slope to pick the best line. This will also allow air to flow more easily into your windpipe as your mouth will be raised, creating a straighter line in the windpipe. Do not look down at your thighs. Go out without poles and practice this technique. 
is the most useful in races where the heels are short and sharp when it would not be worth getting your poles out as you would waste more time than you will gain. Or you're in shorter races with less elevation where you'd be quicker unencumbered by poles. To help with your ultra running progress, get regular up-to-date news, free advice and motivation for ultra running, subscribe to the Aid Station podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or any of your other favourite podcast libraries. You can also get Aid Station via www.aidstation.co.uk. Also, please see the show notes below for the episode to find the links to all the mentioned recommendation and events. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Aid Station and if you did, please leave a review and subscribe. In another bit of news, I've set up a Facebook page for Aid Station. It's an Aid Station ultra running community um, and it'd be great to get you along there. Please just feel free, search it up on Facebook and come along and you can then join in with the community stuff on there asking questions and get direct access to me if you want to, to talk about anything ultra. So it'd be great to see you along there. And until then, and until the next station comes along, keep running, enjoying your running, and I hope to see you out there on the trail soon. Bye for now. Station.